The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Nigel Westhead wrote in 1995, the doctrine of adoption has been more often in the dark than in the light. With few notable exceptions, this familial metaphor has suffered both neglect and marginalization. In the course of church history, adoption has essentially been orphaned. Surveying the church fathers, the biblical theology of Irenaeus gives adoption its only prominent consideration, presenting adoption essentially as a synonym for redemption. Origen and Athanasius, though not highlighting adoption per se, weave a continuing thread of the fatherhood of God and the sonship of believers throughout their works. The first mentionable site of adoptive rescue, however, occurs in John Calvin, where adoption finds a prominent home. In fact, contrary to the infelicitous and indeed unintelligible accusation leveled by Robert Alexander Webb in 1947, that Calvin, quote, makes no allusion whatever to adoption, end quote, Adoption plays such a critical role in Calvin's thought that Brian Garrish fittingly speaks of Calvin's, quote, gospel of adoption. This Swiss reformer and a few others under his influence, such as John Knox and Peter Vermigli, elevate adoption, expounding the gospel notion that the believer is not merely an acquitted criminal but is indeed an adopted son. Consigning Calvin's redemptive historical and covenantal treatment to a systematic theological category, the Westminster Divines devoted a separate chapter, chapter 12, to the doctrine of adoption. And, of course, we find this also in the catechisms. Here is chapter 12 of the Confession. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Beyond the clear pastoral and theological riches expressed in this remarkable statement, the Westminster Confession stands out among other confessions because it is the first in history to isolate adoption as a distinct locus. 
Considering the import of this particular doctrine to a biblical soteriology, such unprecedented emphasis is arguably one of the most significant contributions from the Jerusalem chamber to the church. Though adoption struggled to maintain its own identity in the 17th century continental Protestant theology, its treatment by the Westminster Assembly framed the structure for its permanent residence in the life of the church via systematic and pastoral theology. The work of some Puritans sustained the rescue of this Pauline metaphor, and following the Westminster divines, many decorated adoption as the crown of soteriological privilege, reveling in its pastoral implications. As Dr. Joel Beakey, in his brand new book, Heirs with Christ, the Puritans on Adoption, accurately summarizes, quote, the Puritans spend more time expounding what are variously called the privileges, liberties, benefits, blessings, or rights of adoption than any other aspect, end quote. Sadly, however, in the ensuing centuries after the Westminster Assembly, and the fruit borne out in Puritan reflections, the Reformed failed to garner the insights, yes, I did have to add that verb, the insights of Calvin and the Westminster commissioners, and adoption found itself orphaned again. It was only for a brief period in 19th century Scottish theology and the debate over the created sonship of man between Thomas Crawford, who was a professor of divinity in Edinburgh, and Robert Candlish, the principal of the Free Church of Scotland's New College. It was only in that debate that adoption found a short-lived, albeit incidental, shelter. In view of adoption's theological import manifestly appreciated by Calvin, the Westminster divines and their Puritan descendants, even when considering the Reformation and post-Reformation preoccupation with justification by faith alone, the historical dearth of theological exposition on this doctrine remains mysterious. Its neglect, as several seem thankfully to recognize, is also intolerable. Accordingly, in the last several years, a growing number of historical, etymological, cultural, and theological dissertations, monographs, and articles are retrieving adoption from its undeserved abandonment. That adoption is finding a new home is both noteworthy and commendable. Moving this morning upon the incentive provoked by this brief historical backdrop, my present concern with adoption's treatment, however, is not merely its neglect, but more precisely its oft-truncated character in both its sparse and resuscitated treatments. When giving a hearing at all, Adoption has, in post-Reformation times, been articulated predominantly as a link in the golden chain of the Ordo Salutis. And while the Westminster's Confe Westminster Confession statement on adoption is both true and enriching as far as it goes, the fuller scope of adoption's theological breadth and depth suffers an unwitting truncation when confined solely to Ordo Salutis parameters. Let me explain briefly some of the discernible limitations. The failure to treat adoption in its biblical theological context has promoted the view that adoption is an exclusively forensic doctrine 
with familial benefits. Overlooking the redemptive historical scope of Paul's soteriology has concealed the eschatological grandeur of the doctrine, and an exclusively forensic and ordo-salutist emphasis has perpetuated two truncating approaches. First, subsuming adoption under justification. Francis Turretin, for example, defines adoption as, quote, the other part of justification, end quote. Centuries of Reformed scholarship unwittingly entered this Turretine eclipse of adoption, obscuring the doctrine in the shadows of justification. For example, Southern Presbyterian theologian R.L. Dabney claims, quote, adoption cannot be said to be a different act of grace from justification, end quote. More recently in his systematic theology, Louis Burkhoff positions adoption as a subset of justification. A second truncating approach is conflating the Pauline theology of adoption with Johannine new birth. It is no overstatement to point out that virtually all Reformed systematic theology, theologies reference John 1.12 and 1 John 3.1-3 as proof texts for adoption. Such conflation arguably obscures adoption from its unique redemptive historical function in Pauline theology and infuses a foreign forensic character into the Johannine conception of new birth. So whether curtailing Pauline adoption by ignoring it, by subsuming it under justification, or by conflating it with Johannine new birth, Sufficient impetus indeed exists to investigate more fully the substance of adoption, the word huiathesia in Paul. Building then on the biblical theological treatment framed by Calvin in the 16th century, the redemptive historical approach of Reformed biblical theologians such as Gerhardus Voss, Hermann Ritterboss, and Richard Gaffin drives us and enables us to refocus on the fuller contours of adoption. Sinclair Ferguson captures this implicit mandate well when he says, quote, perhaps more than any other influence, the impact of biblical theology on systematic theology has demanded a reorientation of soteriology towards the concept of sonship, end quote. This reorientation of a broad organizing principle of sonship also applies more narrowly to the Pauline corpus in its treatment of huiathesia. Implementing the tools of biblical theology, then, our, our goal this morning is to consider the eschatological consummation of adoption in Romans 8.23, where Paul writes these words, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." Most biblical scholars now rightly identify both present and future elements in Paul's doctrine of adoption. It is commonly assumed, however, that the future aspect of adoption involves simply the public final revelation of adoptive privilege. Such a conclusion in part properly reflects 
creation awaiting the revelation of the sons of God, as Paul speaks of in Romans 8, 19. But the denouement of adoption in Romans 8, 23 manifestly engages something more. As seen at the end of this verse, the final revelation of the adopted sons somehow entails the redemption of our bodies. This seemingly odd juxtaposition of full adoptive acquisition with the redemption of the body demands an interpretation beyond the scope of a public judicial declaration. What can we properly conclude about Paul's combining this ostensibly forensic and familial metaphor of adoption with the renovative, the constitutive, and eschatologically decisive transformation of the body? Before determining, then, the particular nature of this adoption bodily redemption connection, it is imperative to address a text critical matter in Romans 8.23, that is, to discern the viability, the legitimacy of the word huiathesia as part of the Pauline autograph. Reliable manuscripts such as Aleph, A, B, C, K, P, and C include huiathesia, but its absence in some Western manuscripts such as P46, D, and G provides a measure of doubt. Since the acceptance of huiathesia actually makes for the more difficult reading, the principle of Lectio Difficilior supports its originality. Contrarily, Pierre Benoit asserts that huiathesia was added here by a scribe who perceived that a hope for future bodily redemption lacked sufficient enticement. Hence, Benoit contends, the inserted word grants greater eschatological hope. James Swetman criticizes, Swetnam criticizes Benoit's view, citing the implausibility of a scribal insertion dominating the textual tradition if it was so antithetical to Paul's thought. Swetnam offers an alternative, suggesting that huiathesia is original, but that the participle apekdekaminoi in verse 23 has been mistranslated. Rendering this participle as arrive by inference, Swetnam translates Romans 8.23 this way, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also lament to ourselves arriving by inference at sonship as the redemption of our body. Now, though this rendering of apek dekomai falls within its semantic range, the overall context and the building argumentation of Romans 8 militate against it. Further, this verb, this same verb, is used two other times in this immediate context in Romans 8.19 and in Romans 8.25, where its translation as eagerly awaiting or expectantly awaiting is virtually unquestioned. It is highly unlikely that Paul would use the same word with significant different meanings in the same immediate context. Swetnam's lexical argument is as untenable as Benoit's text-critical one. 
Defending the presence of Huiathesia in the original text, Cranfield suggests that his absence in certain manuscripts, quote, reflects the presence of bewilderment in the face of the apparent inconsistency between the present tenses in verses 14 and 15 of Romans 8 and the future sense of apectecomenoi, end quote. This seeming theological enigma is in part what leads Fitzmaier to omit Quiathesia. As he says, since Christians are already adopted sons of God, Romans 8.15, how could they become more adopted? Fitzmaier, in his argument for the omission of Quiathesia, concedes, however, that it is difficult to figure out how this word consistently appears in such reliable manuscripts. Indeed, it is striking how an exclusively forensic formulation of adoption and, as we will see in a few minutes, a misrepresentation of Pauline eschatology have convinced Fitzmaier to reject what he recognizes as formidable manuscript ev evidence. Both Lectio Difficilior and Fitzmaier's concession underscore how manuscript evidence favors quiathesia in the original of Romans 8.23. <clears throat> Having established then that quiathesia is original to Romans 8.23, we must now probe the issue. In what sense is adoption related to bodily redemption? Is one a subset of the other? Does one operate causally upon the other? Are they distinct but simultaneous realities? Examining these questions necessitates a closer look at some grammatical matters. And I would encourage you, if you do have a Bible or a Greek text handy, just to take a look at this. It will help you as we consider these issues grammatically. If in Romans 8.23, Huiathesia was not original, the syntax naturally places the phrase, the redemption of our body, tain apolutros in tu somatos hemon, alone as the direct object of apec decaminoi, that eagerly awaiting. With such a construct, the hope of the believer resides in a relationally and constitutively undefined milieu of future bodily redemption. Assuming, however, the originality of huiathesia in the autograph, we find a contextual clarification of the believer's hope. Syntactically, tain apolutrosin resides in apposition to huiathesian and is epexegetical. Its epexegetical relationship to huiathesia suggests that Paul is fusing these two soteriological terms and describing them at least in some sense as one future reality. And I quote here from Cranfield, Tain apolutrosin tu somatos hemon, that is the redemption of our body, interprets quiathesia, adoption. The full manifestation of our adoption is identical with the final resurrection of our bodies at the parousia, our complete and final liberation from the futility and decay to which we, like the subhuman creation, have been subjected. End quote. In the Apostle Paul's syntactical construction, then final adoption 
explains, it parameterizes, contextualizes, realized bodily redemption. And with this striking juxtaposition, he poignantly establishes the legal, familial, and renovative context of the believer's experience at the parousia. Charles Hodge rejects a strict interpretation associated with this appositional relationship between huiathesia and apolutrosis in Romans 8.23. Reacting to what he perceives to be a theological implausibility, he contends, quote, the adoption includes far more than the redemption of the body, but the latter event is to be coincident with the former and is included in it as one of its prominent parts, end quote. Possibly fearing the riches of adoption to be lost in Pauline syntax, Hodge downplays the harmonization of these two thoughts. To him, the relationship between adoption and redemption is more of temporal coordination than of eschatological substance. Yet evidently sensing the grammatical force, Hodge admits some theological connection, subsuming bodily redemption under adoption. Such a conclusion, however, still weakens the clear syntactical relationship between these ideas in Romans 8.23, muting the fuller biblical theological connection between the two. Instead, as confirmed in the syntax, the believer awaits the consummation of his adoption, the very climax of redemption, when by the Holy Spirit the redeemed one is transformed and resurrected as a son. Bodily redemption is not merely an aspect of adoption, but is the very essence of it. When by the final constitutive transformation, the redeemed Son enjoys the fullness of Christ's accomplished resurrection. As Paul sees it, adoption attains its telos with bodily redemption because the privilege of eschatological familial intimacy with the triune God can re be realized only with the thorough transformation of the fallen sons of Adam into glorified sons of God by Adoption, something that is confirmed in, in other texts where Huiathesia is mentioned, Ephesians 1 and Galatians 4. Hence, the awaited adoptive inheritance shared with Christ, Romans 8.17, actually itself involves this consummate transformation, moving the redeemed son into incorruptibility and immortality, that is, into full conformity, to the resurrected Son of God, precisely as Paul articulates in Romans 8.29. How could Paul find any hope for eschatological adoptive privilege if such future promise did not mean constitutive transformation into the likeness of the glorified Jesus Christ? Therefore, However, this amalgamation of a bodily redemption and adoption might appear to extend the language and seemingly jeopardize the distinctions of these soteriological categories. These doctrines of salvation fully converge in the eschatological sense of renovative 
consummation. At the resurrection, the redeemed son will fully realize his redemption because his inheritance amounts to a glorious transformation where he is, as Gordon Fee puts it, quote, supernaturally fitted for the final life of the spirit, totally unhindered by any of his present weaknesses, end quote. Though redemption and say implies freedom from bondage in all of its moral and constitutive dimensions, for Paul it is adoption that elucidates the familial and transformational character of this redemption, bringing eschatological freedom by granting believers legally and constitutively renewed access to God the Father in Christ, the Messianic Son. This exegetical conclusion in Romans 8.23 is fortified when we consider some architectonic theological themes in the Pauline corpus. As noted earlier with Fitzmaier, some scholars have mistakenly insisted upon mutually exclusive interpretation that either adoption is fully unrealized or it is fully realized. Such insistence has led Fitzmaier to unwarranted text-critical conclusions. And besides ignoring specific exegetical implications in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 30, it also obviates the now and not yet structure with, which undergirds Pauline soteriology and his theology at large. The perplexity over the plausibility of a present and future adoption reflects a failure to grasp this two-age character of Paul's eschatology, evidenced in his Christology and his pneumatology. And to these themes we now turn. First, to Paul's pneumatology. Using the term pneuma only five times in Romans 1 through 7, Paul makes a discernible shift in chapter 8, where pneuma occurs 21 times. Keeping in mind the epical transition marked by Christ's humiliation and exaltation, the critical connections of the Son of God with the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, and the combination of Old Testament prophecies and the Acts 2 fulfillment Paul's repeated emphasis on the Holy Spirit here unquestionably signals an eschatological new age. Paul assumes the redemptive historical significance of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost as fulfillment of the eschatological promise in the Old Testament of new covenant reality. Hence, in Paul's estimation, the current historical epoch is thoroughly eschatological and therefore all redemptive reality possesses a thoroughly eschatological cast. Since Christ's messianic work is centrally eschatological in nature and the Holy Spirit's ministry precisely coalesces with that of Jesus Christ, the Spirit's ministry could be described as nothing less than eschatological. In Romans 8.15, Paul speaks of the believer's adoption having occurred in the past, confirmed by the eschatological spirit in the present co-sufferings with Christ, Romans 8.17. 
Yet, Paul simultaneously emphasizes the future realization of adoption, that co-inheritance of which he speaks in Romans 8, 17 with Christ, and the bodily redemption of Romans 8, 23 at the resurrection, redemption of the believer. With the theme of eschatologically realized adoption in Romans 8, 12 to 17, it would seem only appropriate contextually for Paul to describe the unrealized aspect of this doctrine in his description of the eschatological consummation in Romans 8, 18 through 23. And thankfully, the apostle does not disappoint us as he explicates the organic eschatological solidarity between the already and the not yet of adoption. The use then of huia thesia in Romans 8.23 fully fits for Paul to unpack the unrealized culmination of adoption, placing it in direct continuity with the realized blessing of adoption in Romans 8.15-16. through 16. This organic development parallels Galatians chapter 4-7, where Paul speaks of present sonship and simultaneously of future inheritance connected with that adoptive sonship. The Holy Spirit's application of adoptive privileges for the inner man confirm and operate in organic solidarity with the eschatological consummation of adoption at the parousia. So we conclude here with his pneumatology saying that Paul's fuller pneumatology underscores the essential, already, not yet character of adoption in Romans 8. Paul's Christology likewise demonstrates this eschatological construction. Building upon the exegesis of Voss, Ritterboss, and Murray, Richard Gaffin has convincingly argued that Paul's declaration of Christ's sonship in Romans 1, 3-4 is an epical designation of historically attained sonship rather than an ontological one concerning the hypostatic union. Commenting on Paul's use of horizo to declare in connection with Christ's resurrection, Gaffin concludes, and I quote, the resurrection is here viewed as a declaration which is constitutive in nature. Moreover, this verb has an unmistakable juridical tone. This suggests that the resurrection is a judicially constitutive declaration of sonship. End quote. In short, Christ's resurrection is his adoption as the messianic glorified son. Just as in Philippians 2, implicit in this declaration of Jesus' messianic sonship in Romans 1, 3, and 4 is the redemptive historical progress from humiliation to exaltation that qualified Jesus Christ as messianic son. His resurrection, which marks his consummate transformation ushers him into this unprecedented sonship status and signifies his glorified human constitution. Hence, in keeping with the declaration of his sonship, 
prophesied in Psalm 2-7. Jesus achieved messianic sonship status through his covenantal faithfulness and obedience, which consummated at his constitution transformation and his resurrection where he was declared son, that is, when he was adopted. The magnitude of redemptive historical significance attached to this unique event in the life of Jesus Christ, the Messianic Son, cannot be overstated. How then do these eschatological matters of pneumatology and Christology inform Paul's perspective on Huiathesia in Romans 8.23? Grounded in the Historia Salutis, Union with Christ serves as Paul's nuclear soteriological concept. It is, as most of you know, as Murray contends, really the central doctrine, central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul's repeated usage of forms such as en Christo and his speaking of activity where the believer was historically with Christ, as we see in Colossians 2 and Colossians 3 and Ephesians 2. These matters highlight the supreme importance of union with Christ. From the negative perspective, apart from union, the benefits of Christ would remain entirely out of reach. And those of you who are familiar with Calvin's Institutes know that in book three, this is precisely where he commences. In terms then of huiathesia, by divinely established solidarity with the Son and the Holy Spirit, the adoption of Christ is the believer's adoption. Thus, to detach the believer's sonship redemptive historically from Christ's adoptive sonship is to introduce a foreign element into the adoptive sonship of the Christian and thereby enter theological abstraction at best and speculative reconstruction at worst. Focusing then on the Historia Salutis, union with Christ by the eschatological spirit places the believer historically with Christ in his humiliation, exaltation, his death, his resurrection, and indeed his declaration of glorified sonship, his adoption in Romans 1, 3, and 4. Two points of primary interest surface here. First, Christ's adoption from a redemptive historical perspective marks the ushering in of the pneumatological eschatological age so that all those adopted in Christ participate in his adoption in all of its eschatological ramifications. Adoption in Christ is participation in the historical transition from the former epoch to the eschatological epoch and a transition from wrath to grace. To uphold the thrust of adoption, this eschatological character must govern any full theological explication of the doctrine. Second, since Christ's adoption marks the consummate renovation of his person in his resurrection, so that by virtue of his adoption he became redemptive historically and constitutively what he was not before. 
the adoption of those united to him must also be viewed as a renovative transition. Weaving these two points together, since the soteriological can be properly understood only in its eschatological cast, this transformative telos of adoption exhaustively governs its soteriological and existential dimensions. In view of this theological scaffolding, it is no surprise that Paul conjoins adoption and the redemption of the body in Romans 8.23. Building upon the Christological, pneumatological, and eschatological cast of adoption, the eschatological perspective of the Apostle Paul accentuates adoption's renovative telos, exposing the eschatological necessity of a filial and bodily redemption at the parousia. In the adoption of Christ, a declared son is a changed son, not only in privilege, but also in material, moral, and spiritual constitution. In Romans 8, we see that in the eschaton, adopted sons are resurrected sons, who, by the spirit of adoption, are transformed constitutively and acquire the likeness of the messianic son, mutatus mutandus inclusively, as we see then in Romans 8.29. Therefore, though adoption possesses a forensic foundation in which the adopted sons are declared God's sons through the messianic son of God, Pauline quiathesia possesses a permeating, renovative consummation in which not only are the relations between God and the believer changed, but also the very nature of the believer is changed, involving a final bodily and constitutive transformation in Christ at the resurrection. Let me close with this summary. In the history of the church, with few exceptions, even in Reformed theology, adoption has been orphaned. With thanks to Irenaeus, to Calvin, and to the Westminster divines, this Pauline metaphor found temporary shelter. But now, with the further biblical theological insight and method advanced by Voss, Ritterboss, Gaffin, and others, adoption is moving from neglect to a more permanent dwelling in theological discourse. It is my contention that locating the proper residence for this soteriological theme and theology and pastoral implication must engage the fuller scope of the doctrine beyond that of ordo salutis, golden chain soteriology. Rather, it must reckon fully with Pauline eschatology, with the solidarity of the believer in Christ's adoption by the eschatological spirit, and with the renovative resurrection telos, which characterizes adoption at the parousia. It is only by this consummate adoptive resurrection that the sons of God come to their final home. And only when we bring this determinative eschatology to our expressions of adoption will the long-orphaned metaphor find its permanent home in the pre-Perusia life of the church. Thank you very much.
Well, what I'm, what I'm arguing, as you will hear, is I believe the Westminster Confession statement on adoption is brilliant. It is a wonderful articulation in a systematic category of describing the essence of adoption um, with its pastoral implications. And even as Joel Beakey writes, that the, the Westminster Vines and the Puritans really emphasized those benefits, those familial benefits. What I'm suggesting, the go beyond language, is to say, let's look at adoption not merely from an ordo salutis perspective, but to consider it in the full scope of the redemptive historical grid in which the Apostle Paul is operating. And as you'll see, if you actually look at adoption and its five occurrences in the New Testament, you'll see that it actually extends all the way from protology to eschatology. So it's a term that has a very rich biblical, theological, and redemptive historical context in which it operates. Yeah, Vern. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's a very good question. I would say that the Apostle Paul assumes the eternal sonship of, of Christ. In fact, he argues that in, in, in several places. That undergirds, that eternal sonship of Christ is presupposed behind my argument and what I think is Paul's argument. What I would say, and I think this is what Dr. Gaffin is also articulating in Romans 1, to declare Christ as the adopted or glorified son at that moment is not in any way denying his pre-existence as eternal son as well as the incarnate son. But there are different aspects to his sonship and that at his resurrection that he attains an unprecedented phase of his sonship status as the glorified messianic son. So I would say what we have in the sending is almost a metonymy in, in Romans 8 for the, for the full disclosure of, of Christ's function uh, as the Son, eternal Son, incarnate Son, and messianic and glorified Son. Does that answer your question or no? Well, I mentioned protology in response to a question. I didn't even mention that word in my lecture. Um, what, when I'm speaking of protology, what I have in mind, actually, yes, is the Ephesians 1 context in which in a pre- temporal context, the whole goal of adoption was established in the intertrinitarian covenant, presupposing the eternal sonship of Christ there. Yeah, what, what, I'm, what I'm really seeking to emphasize is that we move, just like we talk about Christ is our justification, he is our redemption, I would suggest that to speak of adoption in any way apart from our union with Christ historically and spiritually is to speak in abstraction about the, the whole notion of what, what any soteriological benefit actually really is. And so the, the idea is that we must identify our, uh, our sonship, our adoptive sonship, as being directly linked to our union with Christ. I would argue very much like Voss 
functions and to say that we don't understand anything about soteriologically unless we understand it in the context of eschatology. And so uh, where I ultimately will, this, this lecture could not begin to probe the fuller scope, but I'll just kind of give you a hint at where I really believe that adoption functions in, in the same way that union with Christ does. It's really almost an ex explanation for what union with Christ is. So it has a very much an umbrella function soteriologically and not just being an aspect of, of soteriological benefit. Mm -hmm. I think I would answer that question by asking a question back. That's a good way to do this, isn't it? What benefits do you enjoy with union with Christ now? And is there anything other than what you described that you enjoy with, from union with Christ presently in the already that, uh, that go beyond what you've just described? I think that obviously people err in both directions. I think sometimes we, we speak too much of an unrealized and sometimes too much of a realized uh, eschatology. But it, it's interesting that Paul puts this whole argument in Romans 8 in terms of the fact that we already have the first fruits of the Spirit. And so there's, there's a fully realized component that is in full organic solidarity with the unrealized component that will... So I guess maybe to, to put it even in the way that Dr. Gaffin speaks of the past resurrection of the inner man that awaits the full realization bodily of that resurrection um, is, is similar to the way that I would describe the benefits of adoption. So in, in, in terms of pastoral benefit, I would again turn your attention back to chapter 12 of the Confession. Very rich. Turn, go, go and look at some of the Puritans' writings on this as well. Very rich stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's an excellent, excellent conclusion. It actually may serve as conclusion, Scott. I'm not sure. Oh, I'm sorry. Revelatory function. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. No, I think, I think the reason that you hear such a strong emphasis on what I've argued this morning is because I haven't heard it. I, I think we've, we've talked a lot about the revelatory, declaratory aspect of, of adoption. Even eschatologically, if you look at, at uh, many commentators who view adoption as a future reality, view it in terms of that exclusively as that revelatory reality, where I think Paul is saying it is that, just like adoption has a forensic foundation, but it has a renovative telos. It's both and. And so you've heard a lot about the renovative today because that's not the emphasis that's been, that has occurred uh, theologically or exegetically.